be the book of Revelation chapter 2. If you take your Bibles and turn there, we will continue our study in the book of Revelation. Currently, we are working our way through Jesus' letters to the seven churches. We'll find ourselves in Jesus', Jesus lengthiest letter this morning. I believe 12 verses, 11 verses here, and the next longest would be maybe eight or nine. As has been the temptation here with these letters, there's a lot that um, I'd like to say, maybe even feel compelled to say, but in trying to find an appropriate timeline for our study in the book, um, I will try to consolidate some of my, my thoughts today. In my office, I have lots of books um, of all kinds, and um, there's a section that would probably, though, have the most volumes in it in terms of type, written by authors like David Wells, Ravi Zacharias, uh, Cornelius Platinga Jr., um, others that have to do with uh, the culture and how uh, the culture impacts Christianity and our faith and um, the way that it, those things impact our practice here today. Um, we sometimes can be like fish caught up in a stream. We, we think we know where we're oriented, but with an inability to see where we are in regard to the land, uh, sometimes we are much further adrift and further downstream than we might think. Today we live in an age of voices, lots and lots of voices. And by that I mean um, an ability through the media in today's world, especially through social media, to hear more people say more things about more topics than we ever have before. And the something, something that's happened in this plurality of voices is that in hearing so many, it seems like no single one is very loud anymore. And it's like everyone has the same authority just because they can yell louder or post more times. And, uh, and, and what's happening is, is, I'll use this word, it's one intentionally, this plurality of voices that in and of itself isn't evil. Um, and because of the competitive nature and the opinions of so many things, in time, it produces a relativism in us. Okay? And by relative, I, I mean somewhat something opposite than maybe objective truth. Um, we, we, we begin to shift um, incrementally into maybe different positions of thinking than we used to be, or maybe that our parents uh, had. And, and so today I want us to consider the possibility that um, just as this church did in Thyatira, that maybe we've moved away from the basic tenets and elements of our faith more than we realize we have. And if so, then we need to make a course correction. And, and so I'm going to invite you for that consideration this morning as we look into the Word of God. So if you stand with me, we'll read this text. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 18, Lord Jesus Christ uh, dictating 
through the angel, to the apostle John, these words to the church of Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. That's quite the commendation. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins, the motives, and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Our Heavenly Father, I pray these next few moments that, Lord, you may speak to our hearts Lord, through your word, Lord, to give consideration to, Lord, um, the concerns and the commendations that, Lord, you had for this church. And, and so, Lord, I, I pray we'd walk away today, Lord, with the things that you intended for our church to hear today. And I ask your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing today. Jezebel is a name that I think most of us would be familiar with. Jezebel was one of the vilest characters, of course, ever presented in the pages of the Scripture. She came, Jezebel's origins historically, were from the regions of a place called Sidon. Sidon was a place where Baal worship was not just prevalent, but predominant. Uh, it, it was a place where, if you will, the, the devil, um, through his various um, idolatrous representatives, was worshipped, where he was revered. Jezebel's father was a priest and a king who worshipped Baal, Ashtaroth, and others. 
And this woman rose to the height of power through political alliance, a marriage of convenience, again, of alliance, by marrying one of Israel's weakest kings, also one of Israel's vilest kings, a man known as Ahab. Ahab was a bully. He was a bully because he was a coward. He was a weakling. But Jezebel was different than that. Jezebel was forceful. She was powerful. And she was deliberately exceedingly evil. While her sins were many, what she is most infamously known for was leading the people of God astray and away from worshiping God to worship another false deity, of course, Baal, um, the prince of darkness, the lord of the flies, as he was known. Jezebel had temples built in Israel. She raised up priests to uh, accommodate this new religion that had been instituted institute the land. She raised up over 850 such men to serve for the purpose of helping her lead the hearts of the people of God away from him. For this, in time, she was ruthlessly judged by God through the hands of a man named Jehu, who in God's timing <clears throat> led her, led him to this woman in her home, had her thrown from her window, where there after that she was trampled and then just um, the directness of Scripture was ravaged by dogs. In our text, Jezebel is using as a pseudonym, as a nickname, if you would, as a, uh, that pseudonym for most likely a specific person, a real life historical figure, and in part a movement. A, a religious cult that this woman was a part of in the church of Thyatira. Here was a church that had compromised truth um, because of the allurements of the world. In Pergamos, we saw Christians compromising sometimes because of overt, deliberate, external persecution. But in Thyatira, there was compromise um, for a different reason, and, and there was really more an inward motivation, and that was because of accommodation or maybe a desire to be accepted. Thyatira was the smallest of the seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation, and it was also uh, by far the least notable. It was situated north of the other cities by about 45 miles and resided in the open plains. It had no natural protection and no outcroppings, and hence then no kind of acropolis that could be noteworthy. It really served as a gateway to the region of Pergamos, which was probably the second most prominent city in Asia Minor, second only to probably Ephesus. And it was a very rich region. And really historically, Thyatira was just a gateway community. It was founded by a general of Alexander the Great, and it had no really historical notoriety uh, during that time, really after that time. It, it probably rose to its greatest prominence right after the Apostle John wrote this particular letter. 
Unlike the other cities, it did not have great wealth, but it did have this. Thyatira was filled with working class people. Um, these were people who, who were involved in tradesmen. They were artisans. They, they did uh, numbers of things. Uh, they were people like Lydia, whom in the book of Acts, chapter 16, as we know, she was a seller of purple or linen, dyed in purple. The fields around Thyatira contained a flower that was ground up to create this purple linen that Lydia sold. But she is representative of a, of a kind of person that would be found in the city. Uh, people from all kinds of, of abilities, bakers, tanners, craftsmen, woodworkers, workers in wool and linen and clothing. These were the people who provide, who or provide the uh, socioeconomic demographic of the city. Now, well, this next part is, is important to understand the text. The city was organized among these workers in something called workers' guilds. Okay, workers' guilds. Um, the closest thing we would have today would be trade unions. Okay, so whatever your opinion of trade union is, I'm not sure this is the identical uh, synonymous idea, but the city of Thyatira was literally broken up into sections. If you've ever been to some ancient cities, you, you will see that often you'll go down a block and then you'll, there's, there's all the, the potters present their wares here, and then down the street all the bakers are here, and over here you know, there's people who sell uh, wool and linen clothes. Well, the city was organized like this, and really like every block or so would have its own guild, its own workers' guild. And it really, these guilds uh, dominated the social culture, the social environment of the city more than any other um, aspect of the city. And it's again, it's really imperative we understand that and the practice of these guilds in order to understand the failures of Thyatira in the letter. Thyatira's working class were all socially and even economically expected to participate in guild meetings. Okay? And so um, the linen industry in Thyatira had a guild. And I don't know at what interval they would have meetings, but this, all the, these wool workers, whoever would meet, let's say once a month, uh, the most common place for them to meet were either in great halls and often at the temples of false deities. You with me? So not church, but in some pagan temple. And in these pagan temples, there'd be numbers of things that would transpire uh, they may have conducted some business. Um, I don't know that it dominated most of the meeting. But I do know this historically. The meetings all did involve paying tribute at some point in the guild meeting to the patron deity of that guild. You with me? In Thyatira, they, prob they primarily worshipped Apollos, um, Zeus, and other places. But there would be some patron deity that the wool workers would all have to stop in the middle of a feast. This is all organized around food. There would be a feast, and, and there'd be some point in this business meeting where they would all pay tribute to their patron deity. And then the meal itself would almost always be, there'd be meat served. And of course, that meat would have come from the sacrifice of some animal to that patron deity. Okay, you with me? 
Everybody with me? Okay. And so the Christians of Thyatira, well, they were like Lydia. They were workers in linen and purple. They were craftsmen and they were tradesmen and they did this. And so they were, they were expected to be part of these guild meetings. And as you can imagine, as you would expect, there was some conflict there. Let me reword that. There should have been some conflict there. Would you agree with that? Okay. There should have been some conflict there. But the reason in part for Jesus writing to this church is that conflict did not exist. At least among the majority of the members of the church at Thyatira. Um, Here Mill served offering meat sacrificed to idols, which was really expressly forbidden by the early apostles among um, Greek believers um, because of the association that this had with idolatrous worship. These meetings were not necessarily specifically religious in nature. It was part of the social practice and custom of the day, but being part of this was still vitally important to the social fabric of the city. It is almost certain that in this context of business and social interaction that the church members of Thyatira were tempted to include themselves in the meeting minus any stand against the idolatrous sinful proceedings. Which, by the way, as also was the custom... Not just in that day, but in this day, perhaps in some large business meetings in some places, I don't know, like Las Vegas or wherever, for meetings to kind of get beyond the intended purposes and things to happen there that ought not happen. You with me? More of you should be with me. Okay. Or you're naive. And so... Prostitution and harlotry were a big part of these things. They were actually part of the, of the they were actually temple priests, priestesses who served this capacity. And a lot of these um, deities required um, interaction between these people and, and these prostitutes in order to properly worship. I, I know it's odd to us today. It was incredibly common in ancient paganism. Unlike in Pergamos, where refusal to worship the false gods and the emperor would result in death or imprisonment, here in Thyatira, refusal to participate in the feast because of some conviction of faith would result in community anger and angst. It it, it would result in being ostracized socially or economically. It it could mean you might lose your job or... If you were self-employed, you might lose patronage. And so this, this forfeiture of participating in these trade guilds could hurt your pocketbook. And your social standing among peers. Again, it's, it's hard for us to relate. This was a big deal in these communities. So economically and socially, it can be argued that it was... <laughs> a necessity to be a part. You with me? 
I'm sure it was argued by these people. A guy's got to live, doesn't he? We got to make a living. I got to do this. I got to do that. I mean, it's reasonable. It's expected. It's the custom. And so we have this social acquiescence to this to this standard or norm that does not find itself in the page of Scripture. And so inserted into this equation that I have just presented to you walks in a lady proclaiming to be a prophetess, which, by the way, there was precedent of that in Asia Minor and also several places in the New Testament in the early church. A lady comes in with a very convenient teaching and doctrine. She was claiming to be a Christian. She most likely was a, a, had a lot to say about the grace of God. And she taught about truth and the grace of God, but most likely way out of context. And she probably used the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 about, well, meat is nothing. Do you all know the text? Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Take your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to see how this maybe could be used in a confusing way. Now, Apostle Paul speaking to Corinthians who were abusing the same thing that the people in Thyatira were. He says this, verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, now touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Okay? So he's saying, basically, charity should demonstrate itself when needed. Verse 4, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered and sacrificed unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. That's true. And there is none other God but one. That is true. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in the earth, as there be gods many and the Lord's many. In other words, these are the people who call themselves gods, but they're not. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Verse 7, How be it, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. And the conscious being weak is defiled. Okay, stop. You understand what he's saying? Okay, you and I know as very mature Christians that there is no such thing as false gods. And we know that this idol represented him means nothing. What is it? That's a piece of wood representing a God that doesn't exist. So if something's offered to it, Paul's basically saying it means nothing because the idol is nothing and the God is nothing. But he says, not everybody understands that the way you might. There are some people who, who still take offense of the eating of that meat because of what it represents. The idea that it represents. So verse 8, but meat committeth not to God. For neither if we eat, are we the better? Neither if we eat, are we the worse? Okay, stop right there. And that's very well where the teaching of Jezebel, this prophetess, ended. 
in Thyatira. Hey, I mean, we know that an idol is nothing. Okay, you got to get this. An idol is nothing. And we know God is everything. And listen, I know people are watching and I know the training you do. These people don't really understand this. But you know that this is not a big deal. So if you want to participate in these meetings and you want to be part of the trade guild, hey, go ahead and do it. Because grace covers all this anyway. And don't really worry about them. Don't be concerned about judgmental people or people who don't get what you're doing. But that's not what the Apostle Paul said in verse 9. Paul goes on to say, but me, verse 9, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hath knowledge sit the meat in the idol's temple, which were these, where these places were held, these meetings, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul saying this, hey, there's a truth that this doesn't mean anything, but if it means something to him and it offends him that I won't do it, that is Christian. That's called Christian deference. The ultimate maturity isn't I can. The greater maturity is this, I won't if it hurts you. And this Jezebel is distorting most likely this teaching. We read about in other churches the Nicolaitans, right? Those who follow the way of Balaam. Most likely this Jezebel, again, most likely a, a real lady, who was probably a Nicolaitan, which remember, these were people who had a distorted antinomianism. Big word means this, that grace covers everything. Well, does grace cover everything? Well, yes, it does, but it's not an excuse and a reason to sin. That's an abuse of the grace of God, and it tramples underfoot the precious gifts given to us. We are inherently sinful. I can't keep from that, but I ought not intentionally sin, citing God's grace as my provision to do whatever I want. That, that, is, that is unthinkable. That is, a, that is an abomination to live our lives that way. But most likely, this is what this lady was teaching, a form of Nicolaitanism. This perverted abuse of grace. So these people could enjoy maybe the pleasure of sin or at least the rewards of compromise in moments like these. Female prophets were not unheard of in Asia Minor. And with enough persuasion, which just requires an authoritarian voice, mixed with a convenient message, this false teacher gained considerable traction in the church and became a huge threat to the purity of the faith in Thyatira. With this in view, I want us to look at the letter again very quickly. So in verse number 18, in our text, Jesus does something and says something he does, not, he does nowhere else in the book of Revelation. He calls himself by the title, the Son of God. Okay, he couples that with, I have eyes of flame of fire and feet like burning brass. 
In the previous letters, if you remember, he presents himself as the son of man, one like them, one who understands their affliction, one who's gone through their persecution, one who has empathy for them. In this case, the opposite, he presents himself as a man of a God of authority, of absolute rule, of a righteous judge. And he's saying, you need to figure out who I am. And your ultimate fealty and loyalty belongs to me, not some trade union guild. So the picture here is entirely different. He, he's not necessarily being empathetic. He, is, he recognizes the good they have done. But he is presenting himself as the king of kings and lord of lords. And he conveys himself that way. In verse 19, he does commend what is good in the church. And by the way, this is a great commendation. You are people of charity and love. You are people of service to one another. You are people of faith, most likely faithfulness. You are people of patience. You're continuing in Christ. And by the way, all of those are genuinely, truly commendable. And we all could do better in those areas. And we may not receive this commendation here at Eastland Baptist Church for these things to the degree that they're receiving them. Not to be diminished. But, in verse 20, the text introduces us to a corruption in the church. The result of, okay, look up here, then you look back at the text. A corruption that resulted from unguarded love. A love not undergirded by truth. Amen. Today we'd be familiar with liberal churches. Can you, that's a really horrible broad sweep. I'm going to use that phrase, liberal. And I might suggest to you that some liberal churches outshine us 10 to 1 in community involvement and in acts of love and in service. I would admit that. We could learn from them. We could do better. Is that fair? Okay. But love has to have the right impetus and source. And that's called truth. And just as love requires truth, truth requires love. That's a whole nother sermon. But in Thyatira, they love people, but their doctrine was falling apart. So in time, they're going to forget why they were even loving people. They were failing to take a stance on truth. So verse 20 introduced this false prophetess Jezebel and her seduction, seeing the present opportunity to gain a following and a growing influence of the church. She, she, she's called an adulterer. This fornication referred to here is both spiritual, leading people away from the true God to another God, and probably literal into temple fornication. Both probably are true. She had an indifference or lack of sensitivity in participation in the idolatrous practices for the sake of social gain and economic gain. Now, do you get, what, you get what's happening here? Can you see it again? You can be a part of this because of God's grace. Because really, if you don't, it's going to cost you your job. But God doesn't expect you to lose your job. A man must make a living, living right? Well, there has been some famous scholars who said, not necessarily. There is another alternative when truth is on the line. In verses 21 through 23, 
Uh, these, are, these, are, these are difficult verses. These verses speak of her impending judgment. God evidently spoke to someone else to tell her to repent. She did not. And so God, in this case, reserves the right to take her life and her followers' lives for the sake of purity of the church. This is not unheard of. Ananias and Sapphira, life were taken. Um, in the Corinthian church, when people were taking the Lord's Supper inappropriately, their life were taken. I, I wouldn't know to what degree that had happened today. I just know this. We ought not treat the Lord lightly in our life. In verses 24 through 29 includes a, a grand admonition to stay clear of doctrinal aberration. What's called Satan's depths here. Gnosticism was a very prevalent part of Nicolaitanism. Gnosticism disbelieved. You see, the reason they, they had this antinomian view of grace because they believed that all that mattered was the spirit. The flesh was just a shell. So you could do whatever with the shell you wanted to. All that matters is you guard the spirit. Well, that doesn't work that way. If you give your flesh to corruption, your heart's going to be corrupt, right? Okay, but this is not their teaching. And so, most likely they were plunging the depths of corruption to prove that the spirit could not be damaged. And so, then he offers this for those, these so important, these, those who persevere, those who overcome. Persevere and overcome in the context basically has reference to, you won't submit to be part of these guilds this way. Then you will rule with me with a, a rod of iron. This, this is a reference to Psalm chapter 2, where it was a messianic text where Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he refers to himself as the morning star. The morning star was a, it's a reference to Venus. It was the first star you saw in the morning. Uh, it's actually a planet. And the Romans revered that as something of great power and might. And Jesus is basically again saying, I'm the Son of God. I am the, the ultimate power and might. I am the morning star. And if you persevere and you overcome, you're going to inherit eternal life with me one day. It's the same admonition he really gives at the end of every text, just said in another beautiful and elegant way. He's saying this, basically. Whom you serve here now will determine whom you serve in the future. And I think it would be better for us to serve God today. <laughs> A thought. of application. Love and goodness do in fact stand as paramount and pinnacle in serving God. Would we all agree with that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But if we do not protect and undergird this virtue with truth, we risk undermining both of them. By risk I mean when we fail to guard the truth, we, we, we do not protect the faith and its absolute rootedness in truth. In the text, the Thyatirans were commended for love and good works, as Paul argued is important as, a, as an outworking of their spiritual identity. But look here, their spiritual identity is based on truth. Right? And what is that truth? And that truth is that Jesus Christ and He alone is the provider of forgiveness of sins and our salvation. And there's no other name among men under heaven whereby we can be saved. And that there's a real 
absolute exclusive nature to our faith that cannot be given away or compromised in any kind of synchronetic worship where we say, well, I'll bow to Jesus and then I'll bow to the guild and I'll bow to my job and I'll bow to this deity and I'll eat meat sacrifice there. Jesus says you can't do that. The identity comes first and then love comes from our identity. The starting place is belonging to Christ. But if we lose the starting place, in other words, how to become a Christian, then our love just devolves, dissolves into sentiment. Today, like in the days of these seven churches, the spirit of pluralism, ecumenicalism, tolerance, and multiculturalism are embraced as seen as virtues. Are they not? Rome didn't mind if you worshipped a variety of deities other than Caesar just as long as those deities had no absolute claim on you. Said another way, nobody cared what you said was true as long as you really didn't act like or live like what you believed was true. Nobody minds you being a Christian until you act like one. Or until someone's offended by our sensitivities or what we say is true until we claim Jesus as the source of absolute truth. Nobody in the world confers that we, cares that we confess Christ until we say that he is the only absolute way to heaven and to God. And we say that, well, then we're hated and we're not tolerated. The exclusivity of Christ has been proven over and over and over again in studies to be the most offensive doctrine of our faith. Again, in the text, this exclusivity of our identity was being threatened by the synchronetic, that means worshiping two things or being willing to worship multiple things at one time, of the Christians participating in these pagan feasts. In other words, these no one cared that the people sitting at that table called themselves Christians as long as they ate the meats, made the sacrifices, and at least were tolerant to the prostitution occurring over here. Christ's rebuke came not because the church wasn't loving people, serving them, doing good works, but because when it was time for them to stand up for him, they didn't. When the time came to choose loyalty to Christ over economic gain, social acceptance, well, they chose poorly. I'm sure they were told by the proselytes of Jezebel, stop being so tight, judgmental. We're just called to love people. It's about grace and doing good. Holiness and purity, eh. You can eat and drink what you want. Is the teaching that um, you have freedom in Christ. But where in the Bible does your freedom in Christ ever trump your responsibility to love and take care of someone else? And it would be better that a millstone was hung around your neck than you offended someone with your liberties. Well, God will understand. I don't know, maybe not. Can you imagine... Hey, babe, Terry, I have some liberties here as a man. I think I'll take them. Surely you understand that, right? You okay with that? 
I'll be good to you. I'll love you. I'll be kind to you. I'll serve you. But when I want to be unfaithful and cheat, I'm going to hold that prerogative. Can you imagine how that would go over in my life? Oh, my word. Frying pan to the head. <laughs> Won't work for her. Won't work for God. God should always be our primary business partner. Not something, someone else. If you have to forfeit Christian ethics to advance yourself economically or socially, you are making the wrong choice. The persevering and overcoming referred to in the text is just that. When you're at the crossroads of what's maybe in your mind best for you and the truth of Christ, well, the truth of Christ has to win. Christian pragmatism cannot be our guiding principle. Tolerance has limits. It's called truth. Pluralism isn't an evil until falsehood is accepted and accommodated, which the world is asking us to do. Jezebel most likely advocated participation in the civic, social, commercial aspects of the city life, even when it was obvious these were violations of the truth of God. Some Christian merchants and craftsmen argued that God did not want them, obviously, to lose their ability to earn income for their families. And they dismissed the concerns of more traditional Christians about involvement and participation in these guild meetings. Surely people understood this was just about economy, just about my job, just about the political part of it. And maybe people don't get that. And maybe God doesn't. So much to say. You know, conservatives and traditionalists have their own set of problems and issues. But much of their concern for the truth and purity and theological veracity needs to be listened to and heeded. Before we just throw everything away, we might want to ask why it was there in the first place. I believe that truth and liberty are not necessarily mutually exclusive. But if one has to bend the knee... It ought not be truth. From my desk, I see Thyatira all the time. And I'm not thinking of you when I say these things, because I've worked with you on some of this. But for those people who serve like in our military, and they're just things you do as one of the guys, or when you're over there, you with me? For a lot of our first responders, largely men, living in clubhouses or meeting together, sometimes the best of humanity doesn't always rise to the top. A lot of bad things happen there. A lot of our colleges, fraternities, sororities, in business, Sales guys and clients, schools, sports. You following me? Thyatira is alive and well. Accommodation to the pressure of something that most likely violates the heart of Christ. Here at church, 
2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap up for themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables, untruth. I, I am not, I'm not a name caller. I'm not a pointer. But I will say this. There are probably a lot of things out there that call themselves churches who won't broach subjects like these for the fear of the crowd. And to tell them that they should hold on to something that resembles absolute truth. And that there is right, there is wrong. That God demands a level of purity and holiness that we just can't give away under the banner of grace. Allegiance to Christ means something. Tolerance in terms of deference is a virtue. Tolerance in terms of accepting and embracing values that are falsehoods is not commendable. We must never surrender the idea of absolute truth for ourselves and our practical daily decisions and in our church and our culture. As Christians, we must not be afraid of the idea of absolute truth. We must choose our truths carefully, scripturally, rooted in fundamental doctrine, truths that need to become a reference point for all other change. Because people tell us there are multiple genders over and over and over and over, that does, that, that does not change the fact that God said he made them male and female. And I understand the distortions of the fall and all the possibilities, and I can have empathy and I can have sympathy, and I can, I can even try to understand as long as my understanding does not cross me to the line of acceptance. I can love people but not accept a lifestyle or choice. We are in the postmodern world. We are endangered by proximity. We are imperiled by immersion. We are encompassed with endless possibilities of right and wrong. We swim in a culture of filth and vileness that has no love for God. And for you and I to think that our thinking is not altered by that sum is misguided. And you need to be careful that you've not moved past empathy and understanding to acceptance and toleration. I am not willing to debate the origin of life. I am not willing to debate gender identity. I am not willing to debate what happens to me after life. I am not willing to debate the deity, the exclusivity of Christ in my life. I am not willing to give away these things and others like them just for this pluralistic culture. And you shouldn't either. And you need to be careful because these things are attacking us on a daily basis. You're going to give an account. We all are. It's okay to have some fences. Not to keep others out, but to keep you safe. It's okay to guard our hearts and minds and have an absolute perspective where we judge all other truth by that absolute Everything needs to be brought into the obedience and the subjection of, the, of Christ. We have to think intelligently and soberly and scripturally. We need to believe in the absolute authority of God Amen. in my life. That's right. Amen. That's right. In your life. That's 
you need to believe in the absolute authority of God in your life. Not some mysterious esoteric thought, not something we just preach from the Bible. Does God claim authority in your heart? And if not, that's a problem. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. Nothing else. Not the philosophy of the day. Not the PC truth. Not wokeism. Not a changing societal perspective. There's things to be listened to there, but always through the filter of the word of God. We cannot allow pluralistic ideas Injustices, which are many, push, push us to relativistic thinking. We can own our wrongs. We can try to do better. But we cannot compromise truth.